You have to admit it seemed like odd behavior that Sunday morning then when those ladies decided to go back to, to the tomb of Jesus. They had bought spices to cover his body and to try to cover up some of the smell. And I think that probably had to do with their desire to honor him and somehow worship him. And yet it would be odd, I think, in light of the fact that, uh, well, I mean, you remember Lazarus, right? Who had been in the tomb four days, and Jesus' statement was that, well, he wasn't going to smell very well. But they went, and they went because they thought that they could somehow honor him. That particular Sunday, which we celebrate today, this day, every year, they discovered what you and I already know. Because you and I have the privilege of being on the other side of the story. We know the end of the book. We, we've read the last chapter, and we know he wasn't there. And that's just the marvel of this whole story. That's really what makes church even possible. Um, we read earlier the Mark chapter 16, uh, the... It's the end chapter. I want to invite you to come back to that and just kind of take another second glance at that. The Sabbath is over, it says in, in verse number 1, Mark chapter 16. It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early on, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their, on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking at for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's just a remarkable story, this story of resurrection. You've, you've just got intriguing things that are happening here, and not the least of which is, is this. The, the resurrection, I think, con it confronts our assumptions. It confronts our assumptions. See, they expected to find Jesus in the tomb. I mean, that's pretty obvious. The only question that they had on their mind was who was going to move that big, great big rock. They didn't go expecting the tomb to be empty. They, they, well, they, they hadn't caught on yet what he meant. You know, by the way, the tomb's going to be empty when, when you get there. I mean, he already told them that he was going to rise from the dead. They just didn't believe it. They weren't ready for that. They had not anticipated that. Their assumption was that he was going to be there. And what they found, they found an empty space and an angel who was saying, he is not here. I mean, you know, the one that you're looking for, Jesus, the Nazarene, he's not here. 
He told you that he'd meet you in Galilee, and that's where you'll, where he is. He'll see you there. I, I think it must have been an incredible surprise for them to find that empty, to find that that tomb was empty. In fact, it 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 has been an incredible surprise all through history for people to find that tomb empty. That's been the crux of the issue, you know. Without the resurrection, everything just kind of falls apart. If that body is in the tomb, then that means we're in trouble, you and me, and, and it, it's just all over. And yet, all through history, people have tried to deny the empty tomb. Lee, Lee Strobel was one of those people. He's a, he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was their legal journalist. He was an atheist. He was a skeptic. And he set out on a journey to prove that Jesus was, in fact, not true. God didn't exist. Men had made him up. And by the way, he's written two books. Oh, he's probably written more than that. But he's written two of those books. Actually, no, he's written The Case for Christ, or The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case for Christ as well, as well as The Case for Christmas. But prior to that, his first two books, The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ, by the time that he got done investigating the empty tomb, and he discovered that there was legitimate reason to believe that the tomb was empty, he became a Christian. He's now a preacher of all things. Can you imagine that? What he discovered was that, you know, the surprise that those same ladies found that Sunday morning, the, the tomb was, in fact, empty. And if it was empty, well, well, that's pretty significant news. See, my guess is that he will also confront you if you give him the opportunity to do that. If you give him the opportunity, he will confront. Jesus will, in fact, he just will get a hold of you. He will confront you. You know, I, I, I think he's got some things that he will want to confront you about. He may want to confront some of those assumptions that you and I hold. You know, maybe it's the assumption or that you assume that there's no resurrection. I mean, after all, maybe the body was stolen, right? Like if they could reproduce the body. I mean, don't you think that they would have? They could have stopped the church and in the book of Acts, dead in its tracks, if they had just brought that body out. Tell me, who's going to steal a body and then die for that lie? We'll answer this. Who is going to go and take over the Roman guard and have the Roman guard defeated so that they can actually get to the body so that they can steal it and then convince the guard to risk their own lives? I mean, because if they had got defeated and they had lost the body, they'd die for it. Or maybe Jesus just kind of, maybe he just kind of, well, the word is swooned. It's the swoon theory. The, you, you know, he, he was beat up really badly, and he, and he was really in bad shape, and he got into that cool tomb, though, and in the coolness of that tomb, he was revived by the coolness of the tomb, and he came back to life, and he, he then moved the stone, and he, he took over the Roman guard, and then he just disappeared, right? Uh-huh, yeah. After being beaten, whipped, 
39 times and then hanging on the cross for several hours and then having a spear run through his side where you've got blood and water running out of his heart and you know then he revives he, he's revived enough in order to take over a whole Roman legion <laughs> well maybe maybe they went to the wrong tomb they just got confused, you know, and, and went to the wrong tomb. Well, you know, if that were true, then somebody would have drugged that body out and said, you know what, there's no resurrection. Hey, here's the right tomb. He's right here. Maybe what he wants to confront is this idea that Christians are a bunch of wimps. That they really only want to be Christians because of what they can get out of it. But you know that those... You know those people who rely on God as a crutch. Uh, have you read your Bible lately? Or the persecution that the early church went through for being Christians? Have you read about the stoning of Stephen? Have you read about the beheading of James? Have you read about anything in the news recently there were, where there, there were more Christians martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries before altogether? All of that because we're wimpy. <laughs> I don't think so. The church is not for wimps, by the way. The church is for people who have the courage to stand up against a culture in believing something that other people don't choose to believe in. Maybe you will be confronted by the fact that God is the safe place to be. I always stumble over that when I hear that. that those, uh, that's exactly what Corey Den Ten Boom said, right? The safe, safest place to be, she said, was in the center of God's will. She said that in the midst of a Nazi gen uh, German Nazi uh, concentration camp. I, I guess I'm not sure. I, of all the places not safe, I would say it's, it's in the will of God. Because the, thing, you know, the next thing that you know is that he's going to challenge everything about you. He's going to, he's going to change your entire life. And, and it's right in the center of God's will because he may want to stir your life completely up and change everything about you See, my suspicion is that if you come to the empty tomb and one thing you'll discover is he may want to confront your assumptions about him and about yourself. But not only that, the resurrection can also reverse our failures. You notice that, I think, it, particularly in verses 6 and 7. This is the most magnificent thing that's happened more, more than once already in the book of Mark. But did you notice right down there in verse number 7 what it says? But go and tell the disciples. He's the one who just got done saying three times the night before, you know, I, I, I don't know anything, who, who this guy is. I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. And yet here he is having failed about, I mean, just absolutely miserably. And God says, oh, tell Peter, too, to, to come along because I haven't given up on him. Do you remember the, that back after he had said, you know, I believe that you're the Christ, I believe that you're the Son of the living God, and then all of a sudden he turns around and he says, oh, by the way, 
you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus. And Jesus calls him Satan. And then turns around in the second verse of the ninth chapter and says, oh, by the way, take Peter and James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He belongs up, there t up here too. See, he just keeps reversing those failures. It, it, it's interesting to me that in, in, in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, the very first disciple that is called, the very first disciple called is Peter, the very last disciple that's mentioned in chapter 16 in this verse, verse 7, is Peter because he is the grand testimony of having your absolute worst failures turned around. See, I, that, that is the nature of this resurrected Christ. Isn't that awesome? He wants to come in and he wants to reverse our failures, and, and he can do that, you know. If, he can stick, if, if you can stick around him long enough, He's just apt to turn your life over. And that exciting, the exciting thing is, is that he can turn almost anything, well, almost, right? Anything that you let him turn around, he can do. I, I, I just, I'd love to stand up here and tell you. I know that you have your stories, too. I'd love to stand up here and just tell you story after story and story. How about if I tell you about the young woman who almost lost her marriage and for very good reasons? It just looked like that she and her husband were going to be getting a divorce. Um, she had done some things that he found out about. And it just did not look good. They're happily married today. Why? Because she decided to submit to Jesus. And when she did, their lives came back together. Or how about I tell you about the guy that used to work, used to work for actually the state of Wisconsin. Um, and this is the statement that was made about him. I mean, his name was Doug. Doug will never become a Christian. But you know what? Doug is today a follower of Jesus. Now you have your other stories. I, I, I know that if we thought about some of the people that we've, how does Jesus do that? Why, I mean, why is that possible? Because, well, here it is, because God specializes in doing the impossible in, in the lives of people. He specializes in taking lives that are just messed up and, and turning them around. There is not one thing that he cannot reverse by the power of the resurrected Christ. I mean, he can come back from the dead. I mean, so whatever that we've done, he can handle that, Right? He's big enough. You, you stick around him long enough, he, you give him a chance. He can take your failures and he can turn them around in the most remarkable successes that you have ever seen in your life. Well, the resurrection may not only do that. It may just dumbfound your heart. See, this book shouldn't end this way. Susan kind of pointed that out earlier. This is really an odd ending, isn't it? This is, is the only gospel that ends this way. Did you notice down there, probably in your Bible, it says, right under verse number 8, it says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses don't have, verses 9 through 20. See, most scholars would think that Mark ends at verse number 8. And here's how it ends. Look at it on the screen there. It ends this way. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
And you think, what? I mean, it's not supposed to end that way. They're not supposed to end in fear. They're supposed to end in, in amazement. We expect them to go forth in singing and with, with singing and dancing and not going forth in fear and in silence. This gospel, this Jesus, this resurrected Christ, well, he may also dumbfound you. I mean, it may not come out exactly the way that it, you think that it's supposed to. In fact, he may dumb, dumbfound your sense of responsibility. You, you may find yourself saying to him, you know, you expect me to do that? How many, be honest, how many of that has, has that happened? God has asked you to do something, you're kind of going, huh? You want me to do that? I don't know what that is, right? You expect me to do, I mean, he may come in and he may just get down deep in your soul and he may say something like, you know what, I want you to go and reconcile that relationship over there that, is so, that you're estranged with. And you're thinking to yourself, are you serious? He may say to you, you know what, I think it's time for you to give your whole heart to me. Not just part of it, I want you to give all of that heart to me. And again, you're like, you want me to do what? I mean, he just may dumbfound your sense of responsibility because he may want to actually stand, have, have you, want you to stand up and act like a real person in a real world. You may be dumbfounded in the sense of just absolute surprise when you say, wait a minute, he can do that? You know, you ever look at people and see what happens in their lives and all of a sudden you find out, you say, well, what, what's, what do you attribute to all this to? Then they start to share with you what Jesus has done in their life. That happened to any of you? This is all because of Jesus? And you think to yourself, I, at least you, I, I'm just being open with you. He can really, do, can, can he really do that? You're telling me he can change that? And the answer is yes. He may surprise you with that offer of freedom. You think this whole thing is about being locked up in some kind of tomb, but it's about freedom. He may surprise you with that. There's... There's a story that comes out of folk folklore. I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I'm assuming that it's, it's not a true story, but it's, it's kind of an interesting story. It's about an Arab chieftain who catches a spy in his land, and, and he's up for execution. They take him out, and they put him in front of this firing squad, and there is a door right over there. And he says to the guy, he says, you know, you can have one of two things. You can face the firing squad, or you can have what's behind that door. And after a bit of hesitation, the spy says, I'll take the firing squad. The man turned to the Arab chieftain and he said, uh, what's behind the door? He says, freedom. But seldom is it ever chosen because people would rather have the known than the unknown. I, I know people like that. Don't you? Who know that there's a door of opportunity to have freedom, but there's just a little, they're just a little leery to go through that because they'd rather have what they know than what they don't know. Maybe he will dumbfound you with a peace of, and a contentment that comes in your life that is beyond understanding. You know that text, right? There's a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
I mean, it's true, isn't it? Those of you know, who know that piece, that you couldn't put an explanation to it if you wanted to. But you recognize it because when you, see, when, when you have it, it's, it's there and it's, you, you just sense that it's right. You just, and so you stick around long enough and, and he just may baffle you in all of your own expectations. But see, this much is certain. The resurrection of Jesus demands a response from every single one of us. You cannot come to the empty tomb and leave it in the same way that you came. Whether it happens to be that you're dumbfounded, whether it happens to be that your failures are reversed or your assumptions are confronted, you cannot come to the empty tomb and simply walk away the same way that you came. See, it's the nature of Jesus to change us. We know that, right? It's the nature of Jesus to change us. Now, it strikes me as odd behavior, but the ladies who came with such incredible courage to honor Jesus in a way that they had not yet, in a way that had not yet been done by anointing his body, were, they were told when they found the empty tomb, they were told, go and tell the disciples and Peter, and, and instead they leave and they don't tell anyone anything. 